If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Luke chapter 8. We're going to take a little detour from Genesis this morning, but I think you'll see the connection. We're going to be in Luke 8.22. I'm going to read through verse 25. This is the word of the Lord. One day he, speaking of Jesus, got into a boat with his disciples, and he said to them, let us go across to the other side of the lake. So they set out, and as they sailed, he fell asleep, and a windstorm came down on the lake, and they were filling with water and were in danger. And they went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we're perishing. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased, and there was calm. He said to them, Where is your faith? And they were afraid. And they marveled, saying to one another, Who then is this that he commands even winds and water? And they obey him. Let's pray. Father, thank you that your word provides us everything that we need to know you and to follow you. I pray Father, that your spirit would be active this morning to cause your word to take root in our hearts and to bear fruit for our good and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So this, uh, if you were with us, if you've been around for a couple years, you know several years ago we preached through the gospel of Luke. Um, And since it's been a few years since we've been removed, I just want to kind of orient you to where this story is in the context of Luke. So Jesus has been teaching and preaching. He's called his disciples. This is early in his ministry, relatively early in his ministry. And he's starting to gain a following because of his incredible teaching and the miracles that he's doing. This passage is the, big, is the first of three sections that really zoom the lens in on the authority of Jesus. And so in this particular passage, we'll see that Jesus has authority over nature. The next passage immediately following shows that Jesus has authority over demons. And then after that, we see that Jesus has authority over sickness and in death. And it's all in this broader question of who is Jesus? Who is this God-man who has come into the world? That's the question that, that Luke is trying to answer from, this, from these sections. Luke is a great storyteller. And in the span of just four short verses, we have all the elements of a great story. We have a setting. So this is in the, the story is taking place on the sea or the Lake of Galilee, which if you've ever seen a map of Judea, it's in the northern part of, the, of Judea. Jesus and his disciples have been on the western side of the Lake of Galilee in the region of, of Galilee. And now they're headed across the lake in the next section where Jesus casts out the, or heals the demon-possessed man. Uh, they're going to be in a city called Gerasa, which is on the eastern side. The characters of the story, the 12 disciples and Jesus, who is evidently tired, exhausted from probably a lot of intense ministry, a lot of large crowds, long days of teaching and healing. So Jesus lies down in the boat to rest. This is where the conflict enters. Every good story has a conflict. 
a storm. A serious storm. Literally, the word here, this windstorm, means like a hurricane of winds uh, kicks up. The, the wind, the, this is something that's actually uh, unique to the geography of the Lake of Galilee because it's surrounded by hills. Cold air comes down from, uh, rushes down from the surrounding hills and mixes with the warm air that's settled on the basin of the lake and it stirs up these storms that happen very quickly. And as the storm kicks up, so do the waves and water is flooding over the sides of the boat. And, and the disciples, many of whom are seasoned fishermen, experienced sailors who have probably spent most of their lives fishing and sailing on this very lake, really think that this is the end. This is it. They're going to die. I don't know if you've ever experienced anything uh, quite like this. I when my wife Sarah and I were on our honeymoon, we went to a place called Moosehead Lake up in Maine. I wouldn't recommend it as a honeymoon destination. <laughs> unless you really don't want to interact with anyone or any human culture. But we were there trying to make the best of it. We had a lake, so we rented a boat. The place where we rented the boat was in this little kind of... So first of all, let me say that Moosehead Lake is a big lake. Probably twice the size of the Lake of Galilee. It's the single biggest lake within one single state, contained within one single state in the U.S. And the, the, the place where we rented the boat was in this kind of protected cove area. So we got in our boat, very kind of little, uh, flimsy, aluminum John boat with like a three-horsepower motor or something like that, and we started scooting out on the water. We come to the edge of this uh, cove where there's a kind of big outcropping of rocks, and as we turn the corner of the outcropping, what we see ahead of us is, number one, open water. No land in sight, like looking at the ocean. And straight ahead of us, giant black clouds. And almost as soon as we come around the corner, we feel the wind start to pick up. So I turn my little John boat around, <laughs> and we start heading back towards the dock. And on our way, the wind meets us, and the waves meet us. And that little boat is flapping up and down like a sheep in the wind. Thankfully, we made it. But what I learned from that experience is that when you come face-to-face -face with the power of nature, it's a terrifying thing. This is the situation that the disciples are in. So here we are at the climax of this story. Water is flooding into the boat. The disciples think they're going to die. Jesus is asleep, so they go and run and shake him out of his sleep and say, Jesus, we're, we're going down. We're going to die. Jesus rebukes the wind and the waves. I don't know what that looked like. Guys, chill out. And immediately it's calm. Immediately. And in the eerie silence that followed, with adrenaline still pumping through the disciples' veins, Jesus turns and speaks. <clears throat> Now, what would you expect Jesus to say in this moment? If you remember the Gospel of Luke, you know that 
Just before this, the disciples have seen Jesus um, be deeply moved with compassion for a widow whose son, whose only son, has just died. They've seen Jesus show tender mercy to a sinful woman who was out, an outcast of society at the home of the Pharisees. So how does this compassionate, merciful Jesus respond to his disciples who were just on the brink of death? Wow, that was a close call, guys. Man, you are right to be afraid. Why didn't you come and wake me up sooner? I mean, like, things could have gotten out of hand. Things could have gotten out of control. Why'd you wait so long? If you had come sooner, I could have saved you from all this worry. It seems like that would be a compassionate, empathetic response, right? Well, Jesus does have something to say to his disciples, but it's not that. Verse 25, we see, he said to them, where is your faith? What? Jesus, didn't you see that we were just about to die? What do you mean, where's our faith? Where were you? Maybe if you hadn't been sleeping in the back of the boat, we wouldn't have been in this situation in the first place. I mean, if you had the power to calm the storm, why'd you wait until the last minute to show up? One thing that I find interesting about this situation is that these disciples, more than anyone else, have been on the front line of seeing Jesus do incredible miracles, healing the sick, raising the dead, casting out demons, They've been listening to all of his teaching and spending all of their time with him. The disciples probably could have given us a good three-point sermon on what faith is. But up until this point, they haven't actually had to apply it in their own lives. So God, because he loves them and is committed to their growth and maturity, has ordained a situation this situation is a teaching moment to reveal the deficiency of their faith and to bring them into a deeper experience of confident trust in Jesus. The disciples' response in this passage is a negative example. It illustrates what faith is not in order to help us see more clearly what faith should look like in our lives. And I think there are two things that we can learn from this passage about what faith is, how what faith is supposed to look like in our lives. Number one, faith believes that God is who he says he is. Number two, faith believes that God does what he says he will do. Let's look first at what it means to believe that God is who he says he is. We see immediately in verse 25 that after Jesus calms the storm, Luke tells us that the disciples were afraid and they marveled saying to one another, who then is this that he commands even the winds and the water and they obey him? It's clear that the disciples at this point do not fully understand who Jesus is. Maybe they knew he had the power to heal, even the power to raise the dead. But of course, he couldn't control nature. Only God can do that. Evidently, though, Jesus doesn't think that their problem is primarily a problem of knowledge. In other words, Jesus doesn't turn to his disciples and say, Guys, didn't you know that I spoke? the wind and waves into existence? 
Didn't you, don't you know that even now I'm sustaining every atom of the universe by the power of my word? That would be true. And sometimes God does address people in Scripture like that. That's the way he answered Job when he questioned his wisdom and his authority. But the problem here, according to Jesus, isn't a deficiency of knowledge. The problem is a deficiency of faith. The disciples had seen Jesus do powerful miracles. Heal the sick, raise the dead, forgive sins. And yet, when push comes to shove, when their lives were on the line, they didn't believe that Jesus would actually come through for them. Why? Because they didn't really believe that he was who he said he was. The disciples' response shows that they either believe Jesus couldn't do anything to help them or that he didn't care enough about them to do anything. And this actually comes through even a little bit more clearly in Mark's account of this same story. When the disciples come to wake Jesus up in the boat, they, they, they're not just saying, Jesus, we're going to die. Like, like, you should be aware of this. They come and make an accusation. Jesus, don't you care that we're perishing? So clearly they thought Jesus could do something, but he didn't care enough to do anything. So when the winds of adversity, so let me step back. The question here is whether God is really in control right here and right now. The disciples have likely just heard Jesus' teaching that's recorded in Matthew 6.25 about not being anxious. Don't be anxious about what tomorrow's going to bring. Don't be anxious. You don't have to be anxious about your life, about what you're going to eat or what you're going to wear, where you're going to live. Your Father knows you need all those things. They've just heard that teaching. And that sounds great when you're sitting in a sunny field and watching the birds fly by and seeing the flowers sway in the breeze. But it takes, a significant, takes on a significant difference when your boat starts to fill up with water. So when the winds of adversity pick up and the waves of trial start to crash over the sides of my boat, I start to wonder, can I really take God at his word? Is he really in control? Does he really love me? This is where I think it's helpful to see God's loving intention at work in this passage. Like the disciples, God is deeply committed to our growth and maturity. He loves us too much to allow us to continue living in bondage to our fear. One of my favorite passages in Scripture is Hebrews 2.15 says that Jesus came to deliver all those who, through fear of death, were subject to lifelong slavery. It's a vivid image. So sometimes, because he loves us, God brings storms into our lives that reveal our lack of faith. That's typically an uncomfortable experience. It may even feel like you're drowning. But his purpose in those storms isn't to punish you, it's to free you. R. Kent Hughes says, 
Storms are God's way of bringing us into deeper grace. Without adversity, we would be insufferably self-centered, proud, flat-dimensioned, empty people. The disciples ran to Jesus because they thought he was out of control and he didn't care about them. True faith invites us to run to Jesus because he is control, in, in control and because he deeply cares about us. And we know that because that's who he says he is. Let's look next at what it means that faith believes God does what he says he will do. One chapter earlier, <clears throat> the beginning of Luke chapter 7, we hear the story of a Roman officer, the centurion. In the story, if you're familiar with it, the officer threw some of the Jewish leaders, so this Roman officer is not a Jew, but he has connections to some of the Jewish leaders, and he asks them to go to Jesus because his, the officer has a servant who's about to die. He's sick and is about to die. So, he asks that Jesus comes to his house to, to heal his servant, but on the way, Jesus agrees, he, on the way he sends some of his friends to meet Jesus and to pass on a message. And the message is that he, he is, feels so unworthy to be around Jesus that he doesn't want him to come to his house, and he doesn't even feel worthy to come to him himself, but he believes that Jesus has such authority that if he just says the word, that his servant will be healed. And when Jesus hears this, the scripture tells us that he was amazed, that he marveled, and he turns to all of the crowds that were with him and says, not even in Israel have I found faith like this. So Jesus tells his friends they can go, and by the time they get back home, the servant is healed. This is a positive example of faith that's meant to contrast how the disciples respond in the passage we're looking at here. See, this centurion hadn't even met Jesus as far as we know. He hadn't spent any time with him. He likely hadn't seen all the miracles that he had done. He hadn't heard all of his teaching. But he understood enough about who Jesus was that he was able to trust him. He believed that he was good and that he was able to help him. And Jesus holds him up as an example of faith. See, we have to rightly understand who Jesus is in order to understand what he does. The centurion wouldn't have come to Jesus if he believed that he was cruel or selfish or that he was a liar or a con man or that he was just delusional. True faith requires that we understand who Jesus really is and believe who, that Jesus is who he says he is. But it's important to see that true faith doesn't stop at believing in, just in who God is. James tells us that even demons believe true things about God and tremble before him. But they don't have a faith that pleases God. True faith requires that we actually get in the boat with Jesus. It means putting some skin in the game, so to speak. Living in a way that demonstrates that I actually believe that God will do what he says he will do. Because if he doesn't, I'm going to look foolish or worse. Now, please don't misunderstand me. 
I'm not talking about doing things that are reckless or actually foolish or dumb to put God to the test or demand something from him that he hasn't promised he will do. And if you have any questions, if you're unsure where that line is, talk to a more mature friend or a pastor if you feel like God is calling you to do something that is maybe extreme. And I'm not even talking primarily about great acts of faith, like selling all of your possessions and going to live among an unreached people. Although God will call some of us to do that. I'm talking primarily about the dozens of opportunities we have every single day to act in obedience to the things that God has commanded us because we really believe that God is going to come through when he says that that is the path to true life and joy and peace. Maybe it's saying no to sinful desires that you know don't honor Christ because you really believe Jesus when he says that denying yourself and taking up your cross is the path to abundant life. Maybe it's initiating a spiritual conversation with a friend or neighbor because you really believe that God can use you to bring the gospel to people who are lost and broken. Maybe it's using some of your time or money to serve someone in need because you really believe God when he says that there is greater joy and blessing in giving than in using what you have for your own self-gratification. Friends, true faith must believe that Jesus is who he says he is. It must believe that he's fully God and fully man. That he lived a perfectly sinless life. That he died on a cross to take the punishment for sins that we deserve. That he rose again, conquering death and opening the door of eternal life to all who would trust in him. That's who he says he is. And true faith has to believe that. But faith also believes that the road to receiving the joy and peace and freedom that Jesus offers looks like daily laying down my desire for self-gratification, self-sufficiency, self-rule and submitting myself to God's ways over my own. That abundant life, the abundant, abundant life that Jesus offers comes by losing my life for Jesus' sake, not trying to build it up for my own glory and gratification. Faith believes that I don't have to clean myself up to come to Jesus, but he is willing and able to wash and heal the deepest places of my soul that sin has brought corruption and destruction. Faith believes that Jesus is going to be with me through all of the trials and pain of this life. And he will bring me to a glorious eternal home where sin and death will be wiped away forever. And true faith believes all those things because that's what God has said he will do. I just want to make some quick applications as we come to a close. I'll ask the band to return. I want to specifically address people who are struggling right now to believe that God is who he says he is and that he'll do what he says he will do. And maybe you feel that way because you're going through a particularly difficult trial, but maybe not. 
Maybe you just feel like your faith is weak right now. The Bible is really clear that faith itself is a gift from God. It's not something that we can produce or earn. It's something we receive through God's initiative and because of His amazing grace. Often, I've found when people feel like they're struggling in their faith, there is a kind of guilt and shame that comes along with that, that makes us withdraw from God and from one another. Like struggling with our faith is wrong, and so we need to fix it and clean ourselves up before we can come back to God. What we see in this passage is that God has ordained a situation in the lives of his disciples to reveal their lack of faith, but not to condemn them, to show them more of who he is and how he works so they can trust him more and experience more of his abundant life. So if you are struggling to believe that God is who he says he is, and does what he says he will do. First, I would encourage you to bring that struggle to God. Don't run from him, run to him. Be honest with Jesus about how you're struggling and ask him for faith to trust him in the circumstances that you're facing and with the questions and doubts that you have. There's no other source that you can go to. You're not going to find that in yourself. God is ready and willing to meet you. Second, find some other people that you can be honest with as well. I hope and I believe, I really do believe, that Brandywine Grace is a place where broken sinners are seeking to honestly and authentically live out their lives for Jesus. And that means that at some point, we all struggle, we all fail. And we all need help from others to get back up and keep pressing on towards Jesus. If people, if the people that knew Jesus best, that were closest to him, and that he handpicked to build the church, struggled to trust him sometimes, you can be sure that we all will too. But you can be equally sure that the one who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. That the God who loved you enough to die for you will be faithful to use every storm in your life to strengthen and perfect your faith until you see him face to face. That's who he is, and that's what he's promised he will do. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are this kind of God. That you are a God who is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. That you are a God who draws near to the brokenhearted. That you are a God who's faithful when we are faithless. That you are a God who works in every situation and circumstance of our lives for our good and for your glory. And I pray, Father, this morning that your spirit would ignite faith in the hearts, 
in each of our hearts to trust you more, to trust and truly believe and live out of who you've said that you are and what you have said you will do for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen.